In the podcast, Nice White Parents, reporter Hannah Jaffe Walt, you may know her from This American Life, started looking into this one school in her neighborhood after her kids became school age in New York City. Hannah examines this public middle school, traditionally filled with black and brown students, after a number of white families arrive. And then, not satisfied she fully understood what she was seeing, she went all the way back to the founding of the school in the 1960s, and then up to the present day again. Eventually, Hannah realized she could put a name to what was getting in the way of making the school better all these years. White parents, nice white parents, is a fascinating listen that's deeply relevant today. It's made by Serial Productions, a New York Times company, same people who made the hit podcast Serial and S-Town. All episodes are now available wherever you do get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to a special edition of 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville out in the Shenandoah. I'm Al Hunt here in Washington. We remain proud partners, I think they're sticking with us, with the Sign Institute at American University in Washington. And someday when this pandemic is over, we'll get back there. Uh, we have a good show for you, an all-important week. The Democratic National Convention wrapped up. Uh, uh, Steve Bannon uh, was uh, indicted. We'll talk about uh, all that in a minute. But first, I want to thank everyone who subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, this is why you subscribe. So today's episode uh, shows up in your inbox, even though you didn't expect it to wrap up uh, a big week. And the, really the piece de resistance, as they say in Paris, will be Senator Michael Bennett, uh, one of the greatest people in American politics and also a member of that Senate Intelligence Committee, which issued their Russian report uh, uh, this week. James, let's start with the Democrats. Uh, they wrapped up. Um, it, it was overall, I think, a very good convention for them. Um, you, I, I thought the Biden speech was okay. You thought it was off the charts. Great. Most people agreed with you. I thought the Harris pick was off the charts. You thought it was okay. I think it's most people agree with me. Let's combine, merge the two and yeah. agree the Democrats came out in really good shape better than four years ago. Yeah. I, and I, first of all, the, the Harris pick, I, I thought it came out better than I better than I expected, but her speech was not very good. Well, I think the Biden speech accomplished, I, at this point, that speech accomplished more things in one speech than I've seen in a long time. And the main thing it accomplished, it just made the whole cognition issue look stupid. I mean, it just really did. I mean, I thought um, he, he just stood and, and he delivered. And any day that ends with, you know, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump strategist, arrested on a 150-foot, $28 million boat by postal inspectors, and ends with, Joe Biden said, God bless our troops. If you're a Democrat and you're complaining about that day, there's something that's not right. We'll get to Steve Bannon in just a minute because it is one hell of a story. Uh, but I think oh, overall, look, I thought some of it was schmaltzy, but I thought given what the Democrats had to do, a virtual convention, which was hard, I could have done with a little bit less Hollywood. Uh, but they had some wonderful clips. Uh, I thought the Biden grandchildren were just incredible. Uh, Stephen Curry was just great. That 95-year-old uh, war veteran uh, was just so authentic. 
And I think they did touch all the right notes. And one thing it did show, James, that I think four or five years ago, there were legitimate stories written that the Republicans had a much deeper bench than Democrats. They had young congressional leaders, they had governors, and the Democrats didn't have any kind of a bench. Well, boy, there was a bench on display uh, in Milwaukee and virtually, uh, and it's a pretty darn impressive bench. It is. And I, I had a, I talked to Ron Brownstein yesterday. I gave him a quote that I thought the convention up and through Wednesday night could have been 20 percent more 2018. I, I think until that happened, we were not as strong as we should be on the should say, kitchen table issues, which was such so famous 2018 campaign. What I particularly liked about the Biden speech was there was a lot of 2018 in it. And I think that corrected what I thought was a, I said, and I said 20%. And, and overall, uh, 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 you know, that was the seventh game. All right. That's, yeah. that's what that was. It, you can take everything else that happened in that convention and add it all together, and it doesn't amount to the importance of the Joe Biden speech. Well, I, I don't quite know that I agree. I think conventions yeah. leave you with impressions. Uh, and I think most people won't remember a whole lot of particulars two or three weeks from now. But I think the whole convention overall, with some exception, I mean, the Obamas were off the charts, too. Uh, but I think overall, you know, and with the finale, the Biden's, it, you, it, you are left with an impression that this is a party ready to correct uh, the uh, the terrible situation we're in today, ready to govern, united more than any time in a long time, uh, and that they're basically adults. Yeah, I, I agree, but I just we'll, do, we'll just agree to disagree. I think the, the the crowning achievement was the Biden speech. Without if that if that that's what made it what it is. I did not. I thought the convention was pretty good. You know, till Thursday night. Then I think it went from pretty good to like really good. Jeff Nesbaum texted me. They had 247. What they did logistically is something to admire. I think that like 247 total speakers, of which 49 were live. Which is a, you know, I, I people were going to Biden campaign this and the Biden campaign that. And I, to some extent, I wasn't I was certain I didn't have much of a campaign in the primary. Nobody can deny that. But what they did and were able to put together this convention was, a, I think, a logistical tour de force. Well, I think it was good. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I don't look. Uh, there's no way you can say that uh, uh, that we can overlook Michelle Obama's speech on Monday night or the former president on Wednesday night. They set predicates that were terribly important. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, were very persuasive. And there were some other people, too, that did well, some not so well. I, I, again, I, let's just agree to disagree. Without the Biden speech, the convention wouldn't be nearly as successful as this. But that's just my view, and we could talk about anything we want. But just, well, we we disagreed on the Harris. We disagreed on the Harris pick. We can disagree on that. And as I say, we merge yeah, we merge the two together, and uh, and we get something good. Let's move to the, this. The, what you cited a minute ago, Steve Bannon. It's an incredible story in so many ways, as you said arrest the, the 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 trump confidant of one time arrested on the 150 foot yacht of a chinese billionaire uh for a shakedown 
by the, by the Southern District of New York. This is the Justice Department under William Barr, supposedly. And James, let me just make two quick points. I thought in the Nixon years, when they, they, there were the four horsemen in pinstripes, John Mitchell, Bob Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, and Chuck Colson. Now, if you look back four years ago today, there are five people other than family who were closest politically to Donald Trump were Michael Flynn, Steve Bannon, Roger Stone, uh, Paul Manafort, and Michael Cohn, his fixer. All have been indicted, several are serving. This is the most corrupt administration in the history of America. And one final quick point, when William Barr tried to get rid of that U.S. attorney in New York who actually stood up to him, I suspect we're going to find out he knew this was coming. And one can legitimately ask, was this a factor in what he wanted to do? Well, there's all kinds of things. I, mean, I, I think the first thing to remember here is this entire Trump, everything, it's all one giant grift. All right. So let's think about the alleged crime, the indictment. What did he do? Right? They took, they said, we're going to use a, a disabled veteran right, who, who had a, a history of running things of this nature. Hardly a surprise he was involved in this. And they went to the very people that they claim credibility were caring about. And that is, you know, basically, you know, lower middle class whites who have a real sense of grievance. And they just fleeced them. I mean, it's just like these preachers. They would fleece these old ladies. I mean, it. You know, and it, it, typically the political crime is somebody fleeces an investment bank, or, you know, gets, and, and, et cetera, et cetera. That's not what they did. That's not what they did. They stole from the very people that they claimed to defend and promote. And, and that's the amazing, I, you know, this day ended with, it started with Bannon getting arrested and ended with Joe Biden and said, God bless our troops. I, you, you're going to have a better day than that. I don't want to see it. Well, I mean, I, I on the Bannon, you're absolutely right. And, and this was the guy who prayed it as the great populist. This was the guy who was anti-Wall Street, anti, even though he worked there, anti-establishment. Um, and this was just an absolute fleece job. Uh, while sitting on a yacht, that's where they, they arrested him. I mean, it really is well, just absolutely Yes, a guy, a guy who had who had fled rape charges in China. Whatever you think of the Chinese government, this is a bad guy. And uh, but but also Trump, of course. I mean, I thought people Trump was going to have to have to say, "Would you remind me what's it, Steve? Who?" Uh, as he distanced himself. One problem they have. One problem, not just was the closeness they once had, but guess who plugged this project? Someone named Donald Trump, as in Junior. They have it all over tape. And and and, 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 and you ought to see the, the tape of Fox plugging the project. Yeah, yeah. I they, mean, now, I guarantee you, they didn't have it much of that on last night. No, no, no. And and it's just for them, for 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 this president, as he always does, uh, to walk away and said, "Man, I didn't approve of this." Well, of course he approved of it. I mean, it's just uh, it's it's a scam. He approved of it, James, because it was a scam, and Trump <laughs> loves scams. Right. It, 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 the whole thing attracts criminals, all right? It just, you know, it, mother told you, and you're four years old, you know, birds of a feather flock together. It's, it's not just a trite saying. The reason that people say that is because at the bottom of the day, 
there's truth to it. There's truth to it. And, and, and this Air Force veteran had been, I, I think, uh, I have to be double-checked on this, but I, I recall reading a couple places that this was kind of regular behavior for him. Well, the other thing is uh, Steve Bannon knows a lot about Donald Trump and a lot of stuff that Donald Trump did during the campaign uh, and elsewhere. And if it's the Southern District of New York, uh, and those are tough customers. They don't lose very many things, James. They really don't. And if yeah. they really if they really have the goods on him, and if Mr. Bannon, I don't know this will be the case, but if he starts to sing, uh, you know, you're going to hear that at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And of all the people, um, obviously Manafort and Stone were playing for a pardon, uh, and they have not sung. But... Uh, Bannon, Bannon is a tougher customer and more interested in protecting his own ass than in protecting Trump. Well, first of all, we should get this guy on. I was watching Daniel Goldman, the House Impeachment Council last night. Right. And, and he was making the same point. And, and suddenly, you know, if you get indicted by the Eastern District of Idaho, I'm not saying they're not really talented prosecutors, they're dedicated oh, people or anything. Right. But if the last place you want to be indicted is going to be New York, I mean, their win percentage is, is, is stunning. It, you know, Bannon is going to have to make a choice. You know, his lawyer is going to have to make a proffer. And what is included in that proffer is going to determine Mr. Bannon's future, to say the least. Yeah. And I guarantee you his lawyer is explaining that to him today. And well, go ahead. They don't. They don't need. And Bannon is at the top of that conspiracy. They don't need any information on this scam. If Bannon has other information that can aid other investigations, uh, then that there might be a way to to work something out. Yeah, there may be. And I, let's not lose sight of the fact that this thing has been in the works for months. The attorney general was told about it, as he's supposed to be, when any, um, um, when the Southern District or any other district is bringing a big, sensitive case. And it appears, I don't know the exact time, I mean, during that time, he tried to cashier the U.S. attorney of the Southern District and bring in a Trump loyalist to replace him under a highly unusual circumstance. I mean, James, I'm sorry. I don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say that just that just smells. Well, but we should try to get Daniel Goldman on the show. Right. Daniel Come Goldman on. went Daniel Goldman went to Sidwell Friends and we've known the Goldmans for years. And uh, okay. he is he, he is he is terrific. I mean, despite that Sidwell Friends. That so he made he makes the point. You didn't go to Ascension Catholic in Balancenville, Louisiana. No, sorry. Sorry. Missed that one. <laughs> so. Bannon knew in October that they were after him because his bank told him. Yeah. All right. And, and they kept moving money around as if, you know, once you go to your lawyer and you say, look, I'm pretty sure I'm under investigation because I, the first thing that lawyer is going to tell you, I, and I don't care who that lawyer, she or he or what, whatever that lawyer is, is, don't touch a thing. Don't talk to anybody. Don't move any money around. Just stay right where you are. And if anybody asks you anything, have them talk to me. That's the number one thing that you're going to say. And, and they were moving money around. They were trying to hide 
is, is not appreciated. They were trying to cover it up after they knew they were under investigation. And, and how do you know you're under federal investigation? This is just a, a human question. I mean, I know I'm under federal investigation. I know what I did. I don't think I'd be sitting on the back of a boat drinking coffee in, on, you know, in Connecticut. But that's, that, that's the way a guy operates. Kind of, I'd be a little, he's going to find out how unpleasant this is. Well, he is. Uh, I would I would offer one caveat, and that is that it's going to take uh, months before this would ever go to a trial. Uh, and if, as we both are, I think, confident, uh, Donald Trump's going to lose November 3rd. My guess is on November 4th, uh, you're going to have to take out a whole newspaper page to list all the pardons he's going uh, to. Yeah, make. but you know, yeah. the Southern District, I just bet you. Uh, that there's some state laws that were violated by this. There may be. There may be. And I I guarantee you they know the state laws that are violated. There's no question. I mean, that's the problem that that Trump has with the Manhattan DA. But you're right. If there's a state law, there's no way in the world you can pardon someone from that. No. And and I don't know that there is. I mean, I nature of the crime and i mean i was it was just delicious that the postal inspectors arrested him <laughs> oh oh well you know i maybe that was standard procedure but i i i um i i sometimes thought maybe the new york fbi would be the uh, uh apprehending agency but i think there's a suspicion that that's a trump enclave fairly or unfairly but whatever it was one it's one hell of a story Hey, James, you know, in the New Hampshire primary, which seems like 17 years ago, you embraced Michael Bennett's candidacy at a wonderful, raucous Manchester event. I wrote columns saying he was no more qualified. There was no more qualified candidate uh, in the country. Boy, it really shows how powerful we are politically and journalistically. Doesn't it? <laughs> but, I, but I tell you this, we were right. There is no more thoughtful member of Congress than Colorado's Michael Bennett. And he is a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, which just released a bipartisan report detailing extensive 2016 contacts between Trump Trump operatives and the Russians as Putin worked to manipulate the election to help elect Trump. Welcome, Senator from Colorado. Thank you. And I I have to say how much I appreciate the fact that both you guys noticed that I was running for president. And, And James, thank you for coming to New Hampshire. That was the high watermark of a year-long campaign, and I really did. Yeah. It. It, it was it was really fun. I had a good time. I felt so good about what I did, man. It was like I took a, you know, uh, people said, why did you do it? And I said, just because I wanted to. Why not? Yeah. You're 75 and you want to do something, you better do it. My family, <laughs> well, you my, my kids saw it. You know, you throw in Marty Grub beads out into the crowd, and it, uh, it made them feel like we had missed the boat on what these campaigns events ought to look like but next time we'll get it we'll get it yes sir go ahead we're gonna gonna rev him up um let me ask you about this intelligence report uh senator you know it's clear the trump campaign manager shared polling information with a russian intelligence uh agent which presumably helped the russian gru interfere in the election uh uh, that's been documented and where they did it selectively 
the uh, Trump consigliere Roger Stone directed the leaking of Russian hacks at Democrat Democratic emails. I know I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how you define it, Senator, but that sure as hell sounds like collusion to me. It sounds like collusion to me too. And we said that actually the Democrats did, and in our in a in a piece that we wrote at the end of the report. But I think what's really important is that this bipartisan report, all five volumes of it, and I believe unanimously, uh, recounts a uh, a Russian conspiracy to interfere in our election in 2016 and elect Donald Trump. And anybody who cares about the democracy, whether they're Republican or Democrat, needs to care about that. And let me tell you one last thing. They're not relenting. The Russians are seeing President Trump's denial of what they did in 2016 as an invitation to continue to interfere. Uh, the Chinese and others are looking at ways of interfering. And you can see how vulnerable we are. I mean, it, you know, if we woke, woke up the day after Election Day and couldn't have confidence in the results because somebody had manipulated those results, that's going to be a serious, that'll be a really dark day for the democracy. You know, you're so right, Senator. And I was initially really encouraged by the bipartisan uh, nature of this, unanimous, as you said. Uh, the Republicans on your committee, unlike the Devin Nunes and Ron Johnson's, the Trump sycophants, uh, they signed this report. Yet right afterwards, Marco Rubio said the report shows there's absolutely no evidence of any collusion between the Russians and Trump. Now, you know, if, if this is going to be your talking point, he said, she said, the war, I'm not worried about the past. I think it's clear, but it really makes it much harder to put up those warning flags and do something about what, what they're doing again this year. That's right. It makes it hard to defend. I, I will say that um, we're much better protected today than we were in 2016 when we were caught unaware and notwithstanding what the Trump administration is saying or what Donald Trump is saying, the men and women of our intelligence agencies are working overtime to try to defeat the threat. But what's really important, though, I think as well, is for the American people to understand that we were victims of Russian propaganda in 2016. I actually published a book, uh, sort of self-published it during the, during the presidential election that's just filled with the Russian propaganda that, that they produced. And, you know, obviously, first of all, the Russians are incredible propagandists going back to the Soviet Union. But if you look at this stuff, it's the most, I've got it here in my hand, it's the most racist, homophobic, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, pro-Muslim. They took both sides of almost all these issues. But the point is, all they wanted to do is divide us. And for an entire year, we didn't even know it was Russian propaganda. So think about what that says about the state of our democratic discourse. We, we spent an entire year being attacked by a foreign power and we can't distinguish it between our, you know, from our own political debate. That suggests strongly to me that we need to do a better job in our debate, and we got to keep the Russians out of our election. Senator, I said we were going to look forward, but, I, but one thing it just, you know, continues to bother me. I think the case against Trump on on the Ukrainians shaking down a foreign leader to dig up dirt uh, on a political uh, opponent was a persuasive one and an impeachable offense. But that's not nearly as serious as what happened with the Russians in 2016. Did the Democrats make a mistake in not jumping on the Russian 
uh, as an impeachment issue in 2019? I think that, you know, I, I'm trying to think back to that, Alan. I'm not sure I want to Monday morning quarterback it, but I, I think um, the offenses that he was uh, impeached for and that we had a trial on in the Senate were impeachable offenses, especially in the context of what we've since learned. What's really terrible about what happened in, in that uh, instance was Mitch McConnell's blockade of evidence and testimony that was available for the senators to have to at least confront in the Senate chamber. And because, you know, he did his usual stonewalling uh, to protect Donald Trump, the American people were denied the ability to hear evidence that all of us knew was, you know, was would confirm the impeachable allegations that were made. So, you know, a further reflection, I think, of how broken our democratic institutions are and why, in my view, Mitch McConnell has really been a toxic force in American politics for his entire career and why it's time for, you know, him to no longer be the majority leader. I don't think he will be, by the way. I think we're going to win the Senate. So, Senator, before we start, I would remind people that we did run third in Louisiana. (laughs) Yeah. I will I will tell you that there are people that were running for president who noticed that and called me. So <laughs> the, uh, the, the the Mueller report, which some people think was actually more thorough than it's given credit for, did not look into financial transactions in Russia. And it wasn't your charge and the intelligence committee what wasn't what it was supposed to do, but it did, I think, a really good job establishing a lot of facts. The, the unlooked at part of this is the Trump-Russia financial connections. Do you think anybody is going to go forward? We're going to look at that. I mean, the statute of limitations are not run close on that. And what would be the, who would be the proper authority to, to look into that? I think we do need to look into that, and and I I think that um, you know if there's a, um, the um, uh, I and I think the proper authority to look into that probably would be the United States Justice Department, um, maybe the New York uh, state prosecutors. But I I was a big fan of President Obama's for many many reasons. Still am a big fan of his. But one of the things that I always worried about was when he. Uh, said on Iraq that it was time for us to turn the page. And we never, as a result of that, we never confronted, you know, why we went into Iraq, the mistakes we made in Iraq, the fact that we were there for 20 years and also in Afghanistan. We've never really confronted it. And I think that if we ignore what Trump has done here, in effect, that will be an imprimatur of, you know, behavior that should be unacceptable for anybody to be eligible to run for president, much less be president. So I I hope we're not gonna turn the page. You know, it shouldn't be, obviously it shouldn't be, we don't want our country to be a country like, you know, Pakistan, where when you're in power, you you do what you want, and when you're out of power, you get prosecuted. That's not something any of us would want, but- not to mention not following up and jailing some of these Wall Street people from financial crisis. Yeah, exactly. That's another, yeah, that's another good example. It, it, the only thing that would even me, I would still vote for Biden, but the one thing he could say that would really deflate me would be, you know, we're going to look forward after I'm elected and we're not going to spend time revisiting the past. No. I mean, put somebody there and until people have accountability, 
you know, with your superintendent of schools and Denver public school system, you know, a four-year-old's got to be accountable. We've got to test this kid. We've got to make sure, he, you know, retest him. He's at grade. If he messes up in class, he's got to be corrected. And there has to be, there was not accountability on the Iraq war. There was not accountability on the financial crisis. And I think it undermined a lot of faith in people. And there has to be accountability here. And I, I, there's no getting around. And, and Biden has said to his credit that, you know, he's not going to stand in the way. And I, I like that. And I hope I hope that's the fact. Yeah. I, the general I, I agree with that. I was telling Al before we got on the phone that I've spent the last three days in the most rural part of Colorado from Salida to Del Norte to Creed to Lake City to Gunnison ended up in Crested Butte. And these are not Democratic strongholds, by the way. But um, but I was meeting with local elected officials, among many other people, who are dealing with the COVID crisis, dealing with the, the economic crisis. As many of them, probably more of them, were Republicans than Democrats. And one of the things I was saying to them, because they always say, how are you guys as screwed up as you are, as messed up as you are, can't you know even pass another COVID bill? What I always say to them is, if we, to, to your point, James, uh, if we held our elected officials in Washington accountable to the same standard we hold our local elected officials, our county commissioners, our school superintendents, we'd be fine. But over the last 20 years, we've stopped doing that. And um, and I think both you know, the kind of legal accountability you're talking about, political accountability, the accountability that we've got to figure out how to inject back into our system that we've lost as a result of the um, decline of daily journalism and investigative journalism. Our, the democracy just doesn't work very well if you don't have accountability. And if, and if there isn't a standard of behavior that requires you to do something other than come home and say, yeah, sorry, I didn't get anything done and just blame the other side. We, we, need, we need to get to a place where people actually have to get something done. Uh, just as a quick aside, I mean, I agree with you both so much. And I think the lack of accountability on both the financial crisis and the Iraq war was a factor in Donald Trump's victory in 2016. No and so there's a there's a real consequence for that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking and, and the Mueller report had its deficiencies, but a lot of it had to do with the way it was mischaracterized and distorted right away by the attorney general. William Barr, who has become a great Trump loyalist. Do you have any fear as to an October surprise that this attorney general might uh, spring? Oh, I'm deeply worried about all kinds of October surprises. And let me just say on that, to that point, Donald Trump can be reelected, you know, and people better understand that. He, a lot of people thought he wouldn't get elected the first time. Uh, he's going to stop at nothing. And I'm sure, you know, his attorney general will stop at nothing to try to keep them there. I worry a lot about what happens, you know, if we lose one of our Supreme Court justices and what, what that's gonna mean for, in the, even after an election where Donald Trump loses, what, what do they do in the lame duck session to manipulate the government in their interests? And um, so we have a lot, there's a lot, this is a moment when the American people need to be vigilant. And as President Obama said the other day, you know, the whole notion of I alone can fix it, which is what Trump ran on, is completely antithetical to who we are as Americans. The democracy only works, well, let me say it this way, the democracy works poorly when people are, you know, individuals are not involved in it, and it works 
better when we are. And there's going to have to be a ton of oversight from the House of Representatives between now and the swearing in of the next president, from uh, the free press and from the American people. They're going to stop at nothing. And let me, I'll tell you something else. People in rural Colorado are terrified about what Trump's doing to the post office. Uh, not just mm. not just because of the voting issue, although that concerns them. And my state is one of the most successful mail voting states in the country, but but also terrified that they're not going to get their medicine on time. I'm going to put your intelligence hat on for one second, Senator. In an Axios interview, uh, the president said he spoke to Trump and he never brought up the right. significant charges that the Russians were paying bounties right. to kill American soldiers in Afghanistan. What what was the reaction of the uh, mil- private reaction of the American intelligence it's, and military? It's sickening. it's sickening. I mean, it, it's just a sickening thing. Uh, the, you know, he even said it was even worse than that. He said the president said they would have no reason to because the Russians have no interest in Afghanistan. I mean, just the most ignorant, idiotic, I mean, and uh, and reprehensible comments. And by the way, and I I, I think people understand, need to understand this is that Putin and Erdogan and and the Chinese nothing could or the North Koreans nothing could make them happier than Donald Trump being reelected because they they can prosecute their case on the world stage if Donald Trump is our president. It's going to be harder for them to do that with Joe Biden as our president. Uh, let's go to politics. Uh, how do you see the ticket loop of Gardner race shaping up? That's my first question. My second question, do we have a chance for any House pickup in Colorado? Uh, we uh, Let me answer the second one first. We've got the third congressional district where the incumbent Republican was defeated by a Trump, you know, sort of Sarah Palin Tea Party uh, candidate who uh, whose claim to fame is that she wears a gun on the outside of her uh, jeans and that she refused to close down her business when her restaurant, when the governor said we needed to be closed here. And so I do think we have a real chance there. It's a tough district, uh, but, uh, but it's not a, it's not a district, you know, I think that's going to be supported well by somebody with that kind of ideology. And we've got a good candidate, Diane Mates-Bush is her name running against her. So that would be the one pickup. The other ones will will hold. The Hickenlooper race is looking very good. Um, all the polling that I've seen until now has been the double-digit lead for Hickenlooper over Gardner. There's nothing that we, we are taking for granted. You know, Hickenlooper is going to run through uh, run through the tape here, and, uh, and but I think he'll win. And I think, James, there's a real chance that on the day after election day, we're going to wake up and discover that We've got two Democratic senators from Colorado, two from New Mexico, two from Arizona, two from Nevada, two from Montana. Uh, that would be an unbelievable uh, sort of new Democratic uh, wall in the in the Rocky Mountain West that I I think not only um, speaks well of our potential electoral success, but I like the complexion that suggests for. Uh, for our politics and for the Democratic Party. Right. Now, I, I would throw, it's not what you call a Rocky Mountain state, but they got big, bigger mountains. I would throw Alaska in that mix. I think we got a, a real chance. I've been really helping these guys in Alaska. I, that, I'm, I'm yeah, I heard that you are, and I, I think we have a chance there too. I think, you know, we're 
things are looking very good in Maine. Yeah, I think we've got a chance in Iowa. We've got a chance in Georgia. We got it. You know, I think things are looking South Carolina, South Carolina, South Carolina, North Carolina looks really good, and Arizona, as I said. So, you know, we can win all those races, or at least almost all of them. We can change the country. So, I mean, you turn it over now, but I'm making one point where I got you. Uh, the most interesting Senate candidate of this cycle is in Louisiana. All right, Adrian Perkins is 37 years old. He grew up in the most impoverished neighborhood of Shreveport. He went to West Point. He was the first black brigade commander. He had three tours of combat. He won a bronze star. He went back to Harvard Law, where he was president of his class. He came back to Shreveport, beat an incumbent mayor two to one. Right now, the latest poll I saw has Trump beating Biden 50 to 43. All right. I, I, this is a long shot. It's, it's definitely, I, I would certainly not suggest to anybody it's a toss up or even a lean, but this is the best candidate I've seen this party put forward in their third, that, that's in their 30s, maybe in my lifetime. And I'm going to help Adrian every step of the way because just like I helped Michael Bennett, I, I just, if I get my, teeth into something and I believe it's the right thing to do, I'm, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pursue it and I'm gonna pursue this hard. Well, I'm glad you mentioned it. I'll spread the word, James. Thank you. Please do. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, you know, picking up on that and boy, if James puts his teeth in something, uh, you know, uh, get out of the way uh, because he's a force, uh, as you know, Michael. But, you know, I'm looking at what you just said. And if Mark Kelly wins and John Hickenlooper wins and Steve, uh, Steve Bullock wins and Cal Cunningham and Sarah Gideon, for all the talk about the left wing pressures on Joe Biden, when you take that that group that's likely to win and the 2018 House members who won, that really is a dominant, moderate, progressive wing that is going to be in sync with most of a Biden administration. Oh, totally agree. And, do you, and the question for us is, do we want to actually have a governing majority? If we want to have a governing majority, then we have to win purple states in the middle of the country. And we will this time. And the only way we're going to give those states back is if, you know, if we have a, an agenda that doesn't build momentum. You know, some people look at this and they say, oh, we better, you know, get done what we need to get done in the first 10 minutes because no president can do anything after that. I mean, James knows how hard it is to get anything done, no matter when you're president, no matter what period. But I believe there is a real opportunity to build political momentum by, you know, dramatically changing the tax code. So we're taxing wealth and we're giving the middle class in the country a real tax break, paid family and medical leave raising the minimum wage, creating universal health care with a public option, uh, doing more on housing, securing retirement, having a serious plan on climate change that actually drives our economy forward, you know, uh, meeting the unmet need for, for early childhood education in this country, doing something for the 70% of kids who, uh, who graduate from high school but don't go on to college. That's different from pre-college. What can we do to put those kids in the position to earn a living wage when they graduate, immigration reform, infrastructure, tackling inequality, dealing with mass incarceration, reforming our campaign finance. What I just threw out to you, Al, and I don't have any you know, mon monopoly on wisdom here, but to me, that's an agenda that 75% of the American people will support. 
And that's the basis for 20 years of progressive change uh, in this country. And that's where I think we ought to be focused, not just because I think we'll be successful politically, but because more important than that, we'll actually be able to put an agenda down that will be as progressive as anything uh, in the Teddy Roosevelt era or the, or the Lyndon Johnson era, even more progressive. Uh, and, and frankly, that's what's needed today. You know, one thing is, if you remind the, the Clinton economic plan, which causation correlation after it passed, we had the greatest and most broad-based economic boom we've had in this country in the last 50 years. That's just a fact. The Obama, uh, Obamacare health plan, which led to, until Trump got president, I think expansion of health, health insurance to something like 20 million people, were all passed by one vote. Right. And the stuff that had passed the deciding vote were from the same state. And that state was Nebraska. Right. 18% of the United States elects 52 senators. And these people that urge us to have an urban-centric, uber-progressive, you know, type of agenda... And when you say, look, man, and they just they just stumble. They just start muttering around or we'll change the Constitution. You could do no such thing. All right. And you have to you have to go campaign places like Eastern Colorado. All right. You're not going to carry them, but you can do, you know, Holly, Colorado, where, right. you know, where our one of the great people of our lifetime, Governor Roy Roma, came from. And when this party starts turning its back on certain segments of voters, it, 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 it leads to disastrous consequences, I think. I agree with that. I spent all, and by the way, you don't have to turn your back on anybody. We, we got, I, I live in a state which has, and I'm very proud of this fact, we have passed the first modern police accountability reform in America. And it's the, basically the same bill that Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and I and others have supported in the Senate. And it, and it passed here amazingly, with bipartisan support. It wasn't just Democrats. Uh, on the one hand, on the, on the other hand, I'm spending all of next week in eastern Colorado on the eastern plain, you know, in counties where no matter what I do, I'll never get, you know, more than 30% of the vote, even though I'm on the Ag Committee, even though we spent a lot of time working together on stuff. But you can't lose them by 80%. Uh, yeah. You're going to win. And and that, and that, to me, that's the amazing opportunity Joe Biden has here. It's just an incredible opportunity he and Kamala Harris have because Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell are so far outside the mainstream of conventional American political thought that we have the chance to be able to go to Nebraska, for example, James, and make the case that our tax policy is a hell of a lot better for farmers and ranchers than anything Donald Trump ever did for them. We have the chance to go to Iowa and make the case that we've got a path toward universal health care that actually makes sense to people in their living rooms rather than on talking points on the cable television. We've got the chance to make a case on climate change that I think can run the table in terms of what we need to do to drive uh, economic growth and, and job growth in the 21st century and 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 we need it we, we obviously need above all else to have a set of policies that lift working people's wages in this country and if we can do that 
that's going to be popular in red parts of the country and in blue parts of the country. And as I said, I think we could end up with a governing majority for a very long time. And the shame would be if we fail to do it, you know, at a moment when Trump and, and, the, and the, the people that have given him cover throughout the entire time he's been president have governed in the most irresponsible fashion of anybody in my lifetime, you know, including Richard Nixon and, you know, and, and anybody else. Oh, yeah. Nixon did some good. Uh, this guy did no good. Uh, we've more than kept you, uh, uh, Michael Bennett. I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Also, I, you know, let me tell you what else I, I find exciting. A new administration, but also Michael Bennett playing that kind of role in the United States Senate. 2021. I have one final point I want to make, and that is we're facing a disastrous hurricane season. And believe it or not, the best hurricane scientists and predictors are located in Fort Collins, Colorado, at Colorado State University. No one would think that, but they, they are the gold standard of predictions of what's going to happen in storm season, coming from the you know foothills of the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> We're very proud of that. We're also we also have the, the the nation's largest seed repository in Fort Collins as well. And I was yesterday at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory, which is uh, right outside of Crested Butte in Colorado, where they're doing incredibly interesting research on on climate and what it's doing to our, our water. Another point, you know, it's just we have a great opportunity to engage farmers and ranchers in this discussion because they more than anybody else know what's happening to their water because of climate change. And they know they can't pass their farm along to their to their kid or their grandkid if things continue the way they're continuing. But somebody actually has to be interested in talking to them uh, to, to make a difference. So anyway, I want to say thank you too, Al. Thanks. I love you. And James, anything I ever, you ever need from me, I will do forever. Take a look at Adrian Perkins. <laughs> take, <laughs> take care. All right, you guys. Take care. Be safe, Michael. Be safe. See you soon, I hope. Talk to you soon. All right. Ben. Great. James, I know you have to run, uh, but we have two shows. Man, we may want, want to make a habit of this. Uh, this was so good today. But you know, I want to... Go ahead. I just, you know, I've done a lot of things in my life, and that's one of the most, uh, that's one of the, is it most proud or proud of moments I have in my life. So well, you, like with, with Just Cause, one of the best people I've ever known in American politics. Uh, but I want to thank uh, everybody for listening to 2020 Politics War Room. Follow the show on Twitter at Politics War Room. Email us, politicswarroom uh, at gmail.com. That's politicswarroom at gmail.com. And thanks for subscribing. Please rate the show very favorably. I hope a five-star review. We'll be back next week in the middle of the Republican convention. Uh, and you never know who'll show up. But we're going ha- to talk about Republicans next week. Uh, and you can count on us doing uh, our best to entertain and inform you. Uh, I want everybody to stay safe and healthy. And we'll talk to you next week.